want to welcome you to worship this morning. Uh, we are uh, concluding our two-year study of the book of Romans. Uh, we are in chapter 16. Uh, if you would like to turn there in your Bible, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 27. And yes, we made it. After two years of digging into this great book, uh, this is the final day, and hopefully it has transformed your life and challenged you. Uh, it has mine, and I know that it has led many people into the kingdom of God as well. So it's been an awesome study. Uh, but in uh, light of next week being Palm Sunday, uh, I would like to give you like a COVID-19 update regarding our church. Uh, for Palm Sunday, uh, we'll be doing online service again, uh, but we're also going to have uh, a drive-in communion service in the church parking lot. Uh, and so uh, there's, since we have over 2,000 people, uh, there's a, a way of which to do this. And so I will be sending you directions this week uh, via email, which will explain to you uh, what we're going to do, how we will protect you uh, from the virus. Uh, we're going to have sealed elements that you will be able to take. And uh, so there's a, whole, there's a whole plan in place. And we'll have uh, different elders and uh, pastoral staff uh, administering the elements at different locations between 1 and 3 o'clock. So I encourage you to be part of that. Uh, and bring your family. You can you can drive through and have a great time of worship uh, on uh, Christ Triumphal Entry Day. So uh, that'll be next week. Uh, Romans 16. Let's look at that. But we want to pray before we begin uh, and thank God just for uh, the, the word today. And I want to thank also the worship team uh, who've been doing a great job uh, every week, uh, bringing us into God's presence in a powerful way. Uh, it's been uh, inspiring to, to be part of it. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you just for the depth of this book. Um, so many great doctrines that we have studied, justification by faith, uh, the concept of uh, man's condemnation because of Adam's sin, uh, Christ being the greater Adam uh, in, in chapter 5 because uh, he was obedient unto death and bore our sin. So many great things. Uh, your plan for Israel in chapters 9 through 11, uh, chapters 12 uh, through 15, teaching us how to walk the life of faith. Uh, this book has been truly um, uh, encouraging, uplifting, convicting, uh, and uh, we thank you for the maturity that has bred into our lives. And may we never forget the things that we've learned, and may we continue to dig deep on this book. As we study today, pray for your spirit to anoint the scriptures, and as we look at Paul's concluding words, may they truly uh, be one final challenge to us from his pen from this great book to live in a way that is truly uh, Christ-like in the culture about us. And we pray for ourselves that we might be attentive to the Spirit's voice this, this morning as we study. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, when Liz and I uh, got married in uh, 1980 of May, right after I got out of college, and yes, um, this, this uh, May it will be our 40th wedding anniversary, so hopefully the virus will have blown by by then. And we can uh, celebrate our 40th anniversary. When we, when we got married, uh, we went from uh, San Diego to Northern uh, California where I took a job um, with, a, with a landscape company. Uh, and Liz uh, took a job as, as, a, as a dental assistant in a dental office. And um, we lived near my mom's uh, sister, my Aunt Roberta, and my Uncle Tony, who um, they were uh, well-to-do farmers. And so they kind of set us up and got us going as newlyweds. Uh, and one day I was uh, in, in my Ireland landscape truck and I was uh, doing a commercial job uh, taking care of a, a large apartment complex. And when I was finished, I was walking out to the street to get into my truck after I loaded all my equipment. And I noticed the car parked near my truck uh, and there was uh, uh, two guys getting out of this car. The passenger exited the vehicle, began to walk away, and I noticed that there was uh, something on top of the car. So I yelled out to this guy, uh, 
long hair, covered with tattoos, muscle-bound uh, individual, uh, looked pretty mean. Uh, I uh, yelled out to him. I said, hey, man, I think, I think you left something on the top of your car. So he said, hey, great, thanks. And so he, uh, he said, uh, that's my Bible. And I'm thinking, that's, that's your Bible? And so I went over and I introduced myself and started talking to him. Uh, and uh, this, this was what was on top of the car, this actual book, this actual Bible was his Bible. Uh, at that time, I uh, got into a great discussion with uh, this young man. His, uh, his name was Alan Reasoner. Uh, he had spent, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years in San Quentin Penitentiary is what I found out. Uh, and when he got out of uh, the pen, uh, he wrote in his Bible that San Quentin Penitentiary gave him uh, that this was given to him on January the 31st, 1980. So a couple months later, uh, our paths uh, providentially crossed uh, and he became my best friend. I got him a job working with me uh, in my truck because I didn't have a partner. So the company gave me uh, Alan as a partner. And for one year, I discipled Alan uh, in how to know God, walk with God, have a deeper relationship with God because he got saved in San Quentin. <clears throat> but nobody really discipled him. So I uh, spent that year teaching him how to, to study the scriptures, how to memorize scripture, etc. cetera. Uh, and he taught me... Um, a lot about the kind of world that he lived in, of motorcycle gang, uh, you know, drugs, all the stuff that he did. Um, he taught me what it was like to be saved from all of that and the power of the grace of Christ. Uh, we, be, we two different people uh, became great friends. Um, in summer of 1981, I left to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and I hated to leave Alan, uh, so I had my last conversation with my best friend and told him, you know, how to walk with Christ, how to stay in the Word, the importance of prayer, and uh, poured more of my life into him uh, to tell him how to stand strong and to stay away from his friends, uh, from his former life, and to really live for God. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, when I left, uh, he said it felt like the strong stake on his tree had been removed, uh, and he drifted back into his old lifestyle. And uh, began to tell me uh, how sad he was for the decisions that he was making. Uh, he died in a motorcycle wreck um, that year. Uh, and he wrote me a letter when I was in seminary. My first semester in seminary, he sent me a letter. still have the letter. still have his Bible. I keep it on my uh, desk to remind me of Alan. Uh, here's what he said to me in his final letter. As he was intending to ride his motorcycle from uh, Stockton, California to Dallas, Texas uh, to see me and Liz. This is what he said. He said, I'm really excited about seeing you, brother. Uh, I'm starting to write down the things that I want to ask you. Uh, if you think of any special things you want to tell me, write them down. I don't think I could uh, get said what I want to say or ask all my questions in less than a lifetime. Write uh, down books, too, you want me to read. Uh, I wish I was leaving tomorrow to come and see you. I'm, I'm working for a friend of ours. His name is John Morris now. Says the company's called Abide Landscape. He's a uh, partners with a, a brother in Christ uh, from his church, Steve Yoshimi. He said, I work with Steve every day. He says, I remember uh, when Steve got saved. He was one of the best examples of what obedience to God's word can do for a person that I've ever met. And that's amazing coming from Alan. He said, his spiritual growth is a beautiful thing to see. He said, that's a lot like when you and I work together. We were memorizing scripture. Uh, uh, he said, I do really miss you, Marty. I hope and pray uh, you can come out here after school uh, and see me. He said, you know, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ more than anything else. Uh, I just can hardly wait to see you, and I know that that will bring me closer to Christ. I hope you can read all of this mess that I'm writing by hand. 
Pray for me now to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gave me these final words from 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect of good comfort, of be of one mind, be in peace. And the God of love will be with you. Final words. They're, they're a powerful thing. Powerful, uh, final words. Because when you get powerful words like that, you don't take that, that letter and toss it in the trash. Uh, you, you keep that letter. And you might pull out occasionally and you might read it. And you might analyze it and you might study it and you might learn from it. You know, Paul uh, wrote his final letter uh, to the Roman saints uh, and says final things. Uh, and I kind of look upon Paul's final words here in uh, verses 21 to 27, kind of like I look at Alan's letter. It's uh, coming from a man who loved him, cared about him, uh, and he's writing to them to reach out to them uh, and to tell them how much uh, he loves them and can't wait to see them. Uh, it's final words. And when you, when you think about final words and the power that they have, you want to stop and pause and think about them. Saints typically get to the last uh, chapters of Paul's writings and then just read quickly through them, not really thinking, what, what does this teach me? Uh, as you stop and ponder over Paul's final words here, um, as I have this week, um, I've isolated uh, two nuggets that uh, speak well uh, to us as saints. And final words, uh, as we see today, they're, they're, they're spiritually instructive if you pay attention. They're highly motivational because you look at the saint in question, like I've looked at Alan many times over my lifetime and learned from this former convict who was set free by the blood of Christ. When you learn... From somebody like that, uh, it, it goes on and on. And Paul says, learn from the saints that I'm talking about here in passing. So what do we find? We find uh, nugget number one as we analyze his closing words. Nugget num number one is we learn things about others, about other Christians. I mean, not just learn data about them, but we learn things that we can emulate and, and, and make that part of our spiritual walks. The first one that he introduces us to is uh, his, his best friend, Timothy. Verse 21, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, uh, and so do Lucius and Jason, and so Cispiter, my kinsman. Timothy, uh, what an interesting name. His name means one who honors God, and when you study Timothy's life, wow, did he live up to the meaning of his name. Young man that came to know Christ and truly loved him. Uh, he was from Lystra. Uh, where Paul went on his first missionary journey. In Acts uh, chapter 20 verse 4, uh, when Paul closes uh, uh, out uh, that particular section of scripture and mentions friends again, uh, he says in verse 4, uh, Gaius, he is from Derby, and also Timothy. They were sending their greetings. Gaius of Derby and Timothy. Uh, the implication is uh, since Derby and Lystra were next to each other, Gaius was from Derby, and the implication is Timothy was from Lystra. Timothy, a uh, great man. His mother Eunice uh, was a believer. Uh, so was his grandmother Lois, according to 2 Timothy 1.5. His father was a godless Greek, so it was a mixed marriage family. Uh, and in that family uh, came one of Paul's greatest uh, friends was from that particular environment. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, uh, call Paul, Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith, which means uh, he most likely led Timothy to Christ uh, on his uh, missionary journeys. Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 10 through 11, uh, we learn that uh, Timothy was well aware of the persecutions that Paul endured during his first missionary journey. It says in verse 10, Paul says, now you uh, followed my teaching, my conduct, the purpose, faith, 
patience, love, and perseverance. Persecutions, he says, you've seen those. Sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, and at Iconium, and at Lystra, your hometown. He says, uh, what persecutions I endured, and now all of them the Lord rescued me. See, this is most interesting, because if Timothy is from Lystra, which I believe he was, uh, that was... Uh, uh, the town that, where Paul was stoned for preaching the gospel. I mean, they drug him outside of town and stoned him and left him for dead. And don't, don't think that in a small town like that, someone like Timothy wouldn't have known what had happened or maybe even saw it. And we all know what happened when you read uh, Acts about the stoning of, of Paul in Lystra. Uh, they took him outside the town, stoned him, left him for dead. Eventually, he awakened, uh, got back up on his feet uh, and continued to preach and teach the gospel. I mean, that kind of courage spoke to somebody like Timothy. Never underestimate, never underestimate uh, how God will powerfully use adversity, hardship, and suffering uh, to further his name. Uh, that's what he did in Paul's name. I mean, Paul was stoned uh, by the believers there, unbelievers there, for his faith, but God used that particular tragic event uh, to, to, to reach the heart of a young man, Timothy, who did great things for God. Such is the way God works. Uh, Timothy went on to be one of uh, Paul's uh, greatest uh, pastoral friends, one of his missionary friends, kind of his go-to guy. Uh, uh, Paul, he accompanied Paul on a second missionary journey. Uh, he remained with Paul for one and a half years as he taught in the city of Corinth. And it's from Corinth that Paul wrote the Roman letter. You can almost see Timothy peering over the, the scroll as they're writing the letter to, to the Romans. I'm sure Timothy is looking over, hey, Paul, what are you writing? Can I read what you just wrote? Because uh, Timothy was there. He uh, accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. Uh, he's not mentioned until they reach the city of Ephesus. Uh, but during Paul's two-year stint there, where he, when he wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 16.10 that he had sent uh, Timothy on a mission for him. Uh, such was the nature of the man. Always ready to do the bidding of Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 4.11, when uh, Paul is facing Rhodian execution, Nero is about to kill Paul. Paul sees the handwriting on the wall. Uh, and it's a sad denotation at the end of the book of 2 Timothy where Paul says, everybody has deserted me except for Dr. Luke. And he says, Timothy, could you please come see me? You see, when you're facing adversity and, and, uh, and um, your mortality, troublesome times, uh, you want your best godly friends around you. And uh, he was so close with Timothy, he said, I, I, I want you to come see me. Could you come see me? You know, from that brief synopsis, uh, synopsis of uh, Timothy's life, uh, we learn much. Uh, Paul calls him uh, my fellow worker, my fellow worker. Uh, here was a man who knew how to work hard for God. When the, uh, the, the situation was complex and Paul needed somebody he could count on, somebody who would follow through on a pastoral assignment, he called Timothy. He was the go-to guy for the, the advancement of the gospel of Christ. When, the, when the, going, the proverbial going got tough, this is a young man that, that got going, wasn't afraid of uh, anything. We know from Hebrews 13, 23 that he was uh, temporarily imprisoned, but that didn't even stop him. He continued to preach and teach the gospel. And we know from Paul's letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, as the older pastor wrote the younger pastor, that uh, the younger pastor was humble, he was teachable, he was malleable, he wasn't all about himself. No, he's always willing to learn what it meant to be a shepherd. Such was Timothy. Timothy sends his greetings to the Romans, and he sends us a wealth of information of what it means to be a saint. See, here was a man who came alongside Paul and stood with him through the thick and the thin, which leads to the practical question, um, 
Who's your Timothy? Uh, if you're a leader, uh, wherever God has placed you, uh, where is your godly Timothy? Where is the person that you've led to Christ, that you poured your life into, that God is now using them in a profound way? And they aren't just a convert. Now, now they're a close confidant, a close friend. See, every leader needs a Timothy. And every Timothy needs a Paul. If you are the Timothy, the new believer, well, who's the older saint that you are so closely aligned to that your lives are like symbiotically related and you are truly iron that sharpens iron? Timothy teaches us much. When we keep on reading uh, Paul's uh, greetings list, we run into two more individuals that have another concept to teach us. Paul uh, also says, uh, there's, two under, there's really three individuals. He says, uh, uh, greetings come from Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. And Sosipater, are, these are individuals we know something about. We don't know anything about Lucius. Uh, Lucius could have been uh, Lucius the Cyrene, who was a prophet teacher uh, in the Syrian Antiochian church in Acts 13.1. He could be that person. Uh, it actually could be Dr. Luke, this Lucian, because that's the Roman name for Luke. But we don't know that either. So what we do know is who Jason and Sosipater were. Um, these particular individuals. Jason is most likely the man in Thessalonica that Paul was allowed to stay with when he did his missionary work there. He used his home as base of operations for Paul. You know, that was a dangerous thing to take Paul into your home because as Paul went out to preach and teach, he wasn't always met with friendly people. In fact, most of the times he was met with much hatred and hostility. But Jason, whom we know in scriptures, allowed him into his home. It says in Acts chapter 17 what, what happened on one of these situations. It says in verse 5, But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring out, uh, them out to the people. When they did not find them, meaning they couldn't find uh, Paul and his, uh, his missionary team, they began dragging Jason and some of his brethren before the city of authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, like into his home. Uh, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there was another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. See, he had to put up money uh, to basically say, I will put up money, like I will put up my life savings. Based on the premise that if Paul doesn't leave town with his missionary team, I forfeit all of my money. So he had to put up a sizable amount of money uh, to, to get uh, Paul delivered. What a man of God. He opened up his home. You have to ask yourself, would I open up my home to a Paul type? Would I open up my home? Uh, from him, we learned that uh, you don't flinch in the fight. He didn't flinch. As they're dragging him out and yelling and screaming at him and bringing all kinds of uh, fake news about him, about Paul... Uh, he didn't flinch. And we know they didn't flinch because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 to 10 and in chapter 2 verses 14 to 16, it tells us, uh, Paul tells us, that the Thessalonians, even under persecution, continued to courageously preach and teach the gospel of Christ. They didn't flinch. You know, in our culture, there's a um, great opportunity to spread the gospel. There's also a lot of hatred toward the gospel. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, will I be a Jason who won't flinch? Uh, that's the kind of guy that Paul was saying was greeting the Roman Christians. So Sipater was another individual. Uh, he was probably a Sopater that was from Berea. One of the men that 
accompany Paul to Jerusalem uh, on his uh, missionary trip to give the monies to the struggling Jerusalem church, according to Acts 23. Uh, he willingly sailed with Paul, which again was a dangerous thing. Because wherever Paul went and taught the gospel and presented the gospel, he met stiff opposition. So you must ask yourself, here, here's an individual uh, who went with Paul anyway. What courage that took to follow Paul all the way to Jerusalem. Would you do that? Paul says uh, there's three friends here. Lucius, Jason, Sosipater. Three, three men, three buddies, Paul said, that uh, have stuck close by me and they send greetings. Makes you want to ask, who are my three buddies? Who are my three friends that stick with me through the thick and thin that don't flinch in the fight? Every Christian needs those men, those kind of people. Another individual that Paul introduces us to uh, is uh, found in verse 22. His name is uh, Tertius. And from him we learn that you should uh, use uh, your gifts for God. Uh, I, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who was he? He was the scribe of Paul. I can imagine being the scribe of Paul, because Paul typically, uh, I'm sure he spoke fast, uh, and you had to be on your game writing the words for Paul, uh, and he typically broke off onto rabbit trails, and so this particular scribe had to be very particular, have to be able to write uh, legibly so people could read it, had to be highly organized, had to take a, 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 a document made out of papyri uh, with a carbon-based kind of reed pen, and write in such a fashion that other people could understand what he has written, quoting Paul. He was the amanuensis of Paul, which is the Latin version. Which, amanuensis means of the hand. Uh, he's Paul's scribe. This is typically what a, a document would look like that a scribe would be writing. Multiple columns, highly organized, so you could read what was written. What did he do? He took his gift of scribal writing and put that at the disposal of somebody like Paul. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, it makes you stop and ask yourself. He stops in the letter to say, I who have been taking notation for Paul want to stop and say hello to you. What a, what a great, great man of God who put his gifts and abilities at the disposal of the kingdom of God. Uh, for my State of the Church address, uh, I presented many things to you that we need to be doing as a church, many exciting things. Uh, one of the things that I put, put to you back in January was I needed uh, help uh, getting all my books um, uh, to, to the market as it were but the, since they're, they're so long I can't get to all of it because I'm too busy so uh, I received more emails from people who want to help me uh, edit the books uh, look for errors uh, look at stylistic layout etc I received more emails for that particular request than any, anything I've ever asked before it's amazing uh, and I haven't been able to get back to you because of uh, my trip to Israel and then the coronavirus that's happened. I will eventually circle back to all those names. But you to me are tertius. You are ones who step forward to say, here's my gift. I'm good at uh, analyzing, uh, editing, writing, etc. I will. I would love to put that at the disposal of the church. Um, I'm looking forward to getting you in, employed, as it were, uh, letting you use your gifting for God. Because uh, the commentary on Romans that I wrote a few years ago uh, is a short 1,500 pages. Uh, so I'm going to need a lot of help. Uh, and I calculated it up this week. The Romans commentary, now that we're finished, is a little over 800 pages. So I think... Uh, the tertius types in our church will have much to do, but I thank God for you. Uh, another individual that we learn from is a man named Gaius. Uh, and to him, I would say, the concept is uh, throw out the welcome mat. 
That's the kind of guy that he was. It says in verse 23, Gaius, he's host to me and to the whole church. He greets you. He's host to me and to the whole church. Uh, this is probably Gaius, uh, who was from Corinth, according to 1 Corinthians 1.14. Uh, his scholars tell us that his full name could have been Gaius Titius Justus. Uh, and this is the one that uh, hosted Paul in his home on his first missionary uh, trip in Acts chapter 18, verse 7. Uh, his house was the location of Paul's ministry. But what's interesting is his house was located right next door to the Jewish synagogue. Could you imagine the Jewish synagogue, you know, worshiping on Shabbat, you know, Friday evening through Saturday. And then all of a sudden next door is a church overflowing with people in Corinth, people from all walks of life. And even, and even the, the head ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, he gets saved, starts going to church next door. You can imagine the dynamics of the situation. Gaius is home. You can imagine opening your home to anybody and everybody who got saved under the ministry of Paul into your house. Imagine all of the work, getting your house ready for all these people to show up every week. I mean, imagine the congestion outside of, of all of the people coming. I don't know if they were riding donkeys, camels, whatever. I mean, imagine just everybody descending on that house. I'm sure that the people that were in this, the synagogue next door were wondering what in the world is going on. That was Gaius. He said, you can, you can meet in my house. You can meet in my house. See, he was a man given to hospitality. That's interesting. You have to ask yourself, am I a Gaius? Do, am, I, am I hospitable? Do I allow people into my home? Now, I know under the coronavirus uh, situation, we can't be allowing a whole bunch of people in our home. That will soon pass. But there's other ways to do it. Uh, like one of the things that we're going to do uh, is with the women's ministry, uh, we're going to have a live uh, Facebook chat uh, every week called Got Questions where I will just field uh, theological apologetic questions from the ladies in our ministry and we're going to have an apologetic discussion uh, kind of in our homes as it were. Um, uh, when you have a life group meeting and you do it on Zoom which many of you are doing uh, that's, that's kind of like being gay. It's you're, you're being hospitable. You're opening your home. And when we get back to actually opening your home you must ask yourself what's keeping me from being hospitable? Uh, you don't want someone to see, your, you know, your yard, uh, the condition of your yard. Uh, forget the yard. Uh, you might not want them to see your garage. Maybe it's the, the door's up and it's all messed up. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Uh, but you don't want to have to clean, you know, every week to have all of those people over. doesn't matter. I mean, just open your home and be hospitable to God's people and love on them. That's what matters. That was Gaius. He said, I don't care. Show up in my house. And, and Paul used it as a base of operations. The last person that we run into is a guy named Erastus. Uh, and from his life, we learned that you should take the secular in your life and let it impact the sacred. Gaius uh, is, was host to me and to the whole church that was in his house. Then he says, Erastus is the city treasurer. He greets you and Quartus the brother. And then he closes out with the words of uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Erastus, the city treasurer. What city? Well, he was the treasurer from uh, the wealthy city of Corinth. What does a treasurer do? Um, modern day definition goes like this. Um, this is from a website of a, of a city, a uh, given city in the United States. This is what a treasurer does. The city treasurer manages the investments of the city using standard government accounting procedures. He's responsible for working with the budget committee to prepare the city's annual budget. Throughout the year, the treasurer supervises expenditures and receipts and keeps the city on budget. The city uh, treasurer records accounts payable and receivable in a timely manner and prepares the payroll for the city. He deals with the money of the city. 
This is a person who is very good with details and systems. But he takes his abilities, his secular abilities, and he, uh, Erastus, puts them at the disposal of the church. So I'm sure he used his position as a treasurer in Corinth to be a light uh, to the people that worked in his office. But he also used his abilities in the church of Christ to advance the church. Imagine uh, Paul and his missionary team having access to a man like this. He must have been invaluable to them. Makes you want to ask yourself a couple of questions about your secular job. Is my secular job impacting my sacred world? And is my sacred world impacting my secular job? See, that was Erastus. He used his, his gifts and abilities in the, in the secular world to impact the sacred world and vice versa. You know, you might be an Erastus uh, in listening to this and thinking, you know, my, I don't let my secular world impact my sac sacred world like I should, but I got some ideas how that could happen. Um, if you need a sounding board, there's plenty of pastors here who'd love to talk to you about how you can take your secular world and use it to, to tap into the sacred world for God. And that's a great thing to do because the things that you do in your secular world don't echo in eternity. But the things that you do in the sacred world echo in eternity because they're done for God. That's nugget number one. You learn well, final things about these people that are, well, they're, they're principles that we can apply to our lives and learn how to walk with Christ. Nugget number two. You learn things about God. Uh, verses 25 to 27 uh, are those words that we learn about God. This is called the doxology. Uh, and the, the Greek, Greek word from which we get the word doxology means uh, glory. Which is really give God glory. And Paul closes out his book like on a crescendo. He's from chapter 1 uh, to this chapter. He's been building to this. And he stops and he gives God uh, words of a doxology. Words of glory. What does he say? Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all nations. Leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory, the doxa, the glory forever. Amen. What do we learn from that doxology? Three things. Number one, uh, his gospel, Christ's gospel stabilizes you. That's what Paul says in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ stabilizes you. Because prior to that you're unstable because you're spiritually adrift. But once you come to know Christ, uh, it's like you just put pontoons on your kayak. Now, not that I know of anybody that would want to put pontoons on a perfectly good kayak. But you know how easily a kayak can roll over. Especially if a large cigar boat goes by you with twin engines. Um, if you were to put stabilizers on a kayak, it's going to be very difficult to turn that boat over. Because it, uh, how it's hugging the water. Paul says that that's like the gospel of Christ. Once it comes into your life, once you're saved... Uh, God has just stabilized you. That when the storms of life come through, like COVID-19, whatever the, the storms are, uh, they're, they're not going to freak you out and make you uh, toss in the towel and quit. No, because God stabilizes you because you know you're his child and he's not going to remove you from that great position. Remember uh, Romans chapter 8, love that chapter, where Paul says that there's nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, not height, not depth. Not principalities, not powers, uh, nothing in this age, nothing in the age to come. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ once you're his child. Uh, and that stabilizes you in your faith. 
I don't know about you, but uh, I, I love the fact that uh, I don't have to hold on to Christ. He holds on to me. And he holds on to you. We should give God glory. Why? Because he stabilizes our faith. Number two, his gospel revolutionizes you. Uh, well, in what way? Well, Paul says that this whole gospel was a mystery that was kept secret for uh, ages past. Uh, that from Genesis to Revelation, God has opened up uh, through progressive revelation what he's been doing. And when you become a Christian, you have a lot of those aha moments where you are able to connect the dots with what God's doing. I mean, if you think back uh, to the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, they knew that a promised seed, the Messiah, was coming because God prophesied it in Genesis 3.15. They knew, uh, as Cain and Abel uh, learned, that uh, God expects blood sacrifice to cover sin if you want to approach him. Uh, they knew that God would send a prophet that would be greater than Moses, according to Deuteronomy uh, as he prophesied in chapter 18. They knew from the construction of the temple and the tabernacle, uh, uh, coupled with blood sacrifice that's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 1, that no man could come to God unless he had the right sacrifice. That's how Leviticus 1 starts, the burnt offering. You had to enter God's presence with the burnt offering, the lamb of the first year that you would confess your sin on. I mean, they all understood these things in God's plan. They just didn't completely understand what it pointed to. They knew that the Messiah would one day be a great Davidic king greater than uh, David. Psalm 2 talks about him. So does Psalm 89. They knew from Isaiah 53 that the Messiah was coming and he would die for the sins of the world. They understood these things. What they did not understand was that God was going to take the people of Israel and the Gentiles and form them into a new entity called the church. That was a mystery. That caught everybody off guard. You know, God is a very, at times, surprising God. Paul talks about the mystery of the church in Ephesians 3 this way. He says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what it is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Those are angels. This was, he says, in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said no one connected the dots in the Old Testament that one day God's redemptive plan was going to save Jews and Gentiles, break down the wall between them, which was the law, uh, and bring them together and build a new entity called the Church of Jesus Christ. That, that was the mystery. But then, see, now we get it. Now we can look back and see God had a plan far beyond what anybody could comprehend that he was going to build a church. See, now we can look back as Christians and say, we know that Jesus is the greater Adam because the first Adam sinned. The second Adam, Jesus, was greater because he was sinless. See, we can look back and say that Jesus is the greater Isaac uh, because he laid his life down willingly and paid for the sins of the world. Isaac couldn't do that. We now know that Jesus is the greater Moses because he didn't just bring people through the sea and deliver them through the sea. He brought them through the sea of sin and delivered mankind by, by dealing with sin. Jesus is the greater uh, David because he's the king that David could not be because he's the eternal God. And he, Jesus is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 1 and following that there was no sacrifice like his. He put to end all sacrifices. And we also understand from Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 7 that he's the priest of all priests. 
Because he's the eternal priest. That's why in Hebrews 1 it says, after he finished his redemptive work, he sat down. No priest ever sat down because their, their work was never finished. But when Jesus finished his role as the sacrifice, as the Savior, he became the ultimate high priest because he had done what no priest could ever do. He had paid for the penalty of all sin and then rose victorious the third day. What does Paul say when you think about this mystery, the church? He says, give God glory. So when's the last time you stopped and paused and gave God glory for the church? You know, times are tough now. Uh, we, we can't meet for, because of a virus. But do you think that's going to stop the church of Christ? I think not. Uh, God's church is going forward. And we need to give God glory for the greatness of his church. And the greatness of God in bringing all peoples together under the banner of the cross of Christ. The last thing, the third thing that we should give God glory for is the power of the gospel to energize you. Notice what Paul says. He says that what I've been saying here should that be that which leads to obedience of faith. And then he says to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. See, when you come to know God, it energizes you to follow God. He said it just, it just happens that you, you want to pray. You want to study the word. You want to be in church. You want to tithe. You want to walk with God. You want to model your life after his life. You want to grow up in the faith. It just comes with being a child of God. It's a wonder of the faith. It energizes you to live differently. You know, the more I got to know Alan and in his life, the more I could see the power of the grace of God in a man's life. You know, one day we, we drove by a house uh, and we pulled up in front of this uh, A-frame wooden house. Uh, and he said, uh, you see those holes in the front porch? And I said, yeah. He said, those are uh, from bullets uh, that I fired several years ago uh, at the uh, opposing gang member that was on the front porch. Really? Yeah. He acquainted me with evil. But he was amazed at the grace of Christ that saved him. And to see a man that went from uh, the depths of sin... And met Christ in a penitentiary of all, all things is mind-boggling. Because it energized him in a way that was mind-boggling. That he, his life was radically different. See, that's the power of the cross. It changes a man. It gives the, the man the ability not to be a slave to sin anymore. To be a slave of Christ. Makes you want to sing. I can think of a song. Uh, I love to play it on the piano. It's a great way to conclude Romans. It's, it's called Take My Life and Let It Be. Consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. It says, take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. See, that's what justification is all about. You're now right with God. He now gives you his spirit to empower you to live a godly life. Now your responsibility is to consecrate your life and give it back to God and say, God, here I am. Use me for the sake of the gospel. God bless you. Uh, we are praying for you and we pray that God would anoint you and use you greatly because you've spent time in his word. Let's pray. God, thank you just for the power of Paul's pen uh, and for uh, his scribe that wrote all these words down for us, how laborious that effort must have been, but how invaluable it has been to the saints for thousands of years. Might our lives conform to the image of Christ. May we put away the things that are deeds of darkness. And now that we are free and, and slaves of Christ, might our lives constantly be seen as those that reflect Jesus in everything that we do. And we have plenty of opportunity to reflect you, especially at this time of crisis. Might we truly be your hands and feet and may people be able to see the light of Christ in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.